Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, so think about this. You have on the side of the non-existent big other, knowledge of everything. On the side of the big barred other and its various subsets known as S2s here in Seminar 17, you have the phenomena of all-knowing. They're not the same. Knowledge of everything as a stable collection is different from the all-knowing as a process goaded by the prospect impossible though it is, of omniscience. Lacan wants to suggest that this all-knowing begins with the slave in the master-slave dialectic, if you've got ears to hear his Hegelianism here. But then, he says, philosophy, or the university, steals this all-knowing, this S2, for the master. This is part and parcel of what is often left out of discussions of the master's discourse. So the master's discourse, you have S1 addressing S2, little a underneath the S2, and the barred subject underneath the S1. It looks a hell of a lot like the three-footed animal that is the topology of the subject. And then Lacan says, let's go ahead and add what he calls the fourth leg, which is this little a, and he puts it down underneath the S2. That's how you get the topology of the master's discourse. It comes from his earlier topology of the subject, which is rooted in his hypothesis that a signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. So if we were to write this out, it would look something like this. The original topology is based on the hypothesis that a signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. Signifiers are represents a subject to another signifier. We've been over this a lot, so we don't need to spend much time with it. The discourse of the master is founded on that very topology, and Lacan just adds this fourth leg, what he calls it, the fourth leg, this objet a down here. Here is the discourse of the master, and it's typically discussed as the master commands the slave to, I don't fucking know, paint the fence, bake me a cake, fix the car, whatever. The slave produces something. Now, because we're thinking, as with Lacan, in the spirit of capitalism, you can think of this as a loss or a gain. This is the nature of surplus. This is the way surplus works. So, if I can build the watch in my factory, all costs covered for $10, and then I sell it to you for $50, After paying all my workers, to the extent that I do, after paying for all machine upgrades, materials, shipping, all that shit, when I pay everything, it's only $10, and you bought it for $50, I enjoy a gain of $40. The surplus value, the difference between the cost to produce the watch and the price at which it sells, is called surplus value in Marxian thought. And that surplus value here is a gain. 
Lacan wants to say that objet a as a production that the slave engages in at the command of the master, that's what this arrow is, it's an arrow of addressivity and command, is a production that can and often does result in a gain, a surplus value, but it can also result in a loss. If I open a watch factory and I start making watches and all of a sudden the price of materials goes through the fucking roof and suddenly it costs me $60 to make a watch that you will only pay 50 for, now what is produced by all the slaves' labor and work, notice the distinction as Hannah Arendt points out between labor and work here, all of that would result now in a loss. Now I'm in a deficit of $10 for each watch because it costs me 60 to make it and you are only willing to pay 50. Now what is produced is a loss. So in objet A here, as Lacan starts to figure it, hold in your mind that it is a production. But in the spirit of capitalism, that production can either be a gain or a loss, a surplus value or a surplus deficit, if you prefer that image. Here, though, is this topology of the master that you get from the topology of the subject with the addition of this little a here whose preliminary definition I've just given you. Now, this is a really typical, classic understanding of the master. The master commands the slave to bake him a cake. The, what's produced is the cake that then the master gets to annihilate. Sometimes people talk about it as the master gets to enjoy what that is, that there's a trajectory of jouissance from whatever the slave makes to the master that gobbles it up, that annihilates the cake that the slave made. That is not the definition that I want to start with here. And I don't think it's the definition that Lacan starts with here. So again, beware what you've heard up to this point about how the discourse of the master operates. What I just said, the traditional down-the-line understanding of the master, it's not incorrect, it's incomplete. There's more to it than that. And that's what I want to focus on, the part that doesn't always get addressed. That this all-knowing, this capacity to bake cakes, paint fences, and build watches that you see at the level of the slave somehow gets stolen. The slave is dispossessed of this by the university, by philosophy. And this knowledge is transformed into something for the master. It's knowledge that is the commodity that the master consumes. Let's see what we can make of this. The good action begins on page 21. Probably two, three, maybe eight lines from the bottom of the page, nine lines from the bottom of the page. What does philosophy designate? Okay, so at the bottom of page 20, section four here, Lacan starts talking about the master's discourse. Then he quickly goes to the university, and then from the university he goes on to philosophy. You can track it in this bottom paragraph on page 20. He's doing something there. He's up to something there. And remember what I said in my series on 16, and remember what I told you in this lecture as well. There's a symbiotic relationship between the master and the university. And then there's also a symbiotic relationship between the hysteric and the analyst, which we'll come to. But for now, we're looking at that symbiotic relationship between the master and the university. Lacan starts to cue it up. 
at the bottom of page 20. And then at the bottom of page 21, he wants to explain a little bit more how that symbiosis between the master and the university works. What does philosophy, this prototype of the university discourse, designate over its entire evolution? It's this, theft, abduction, stealing slavery of its knowledge through the maneuvers of the master. Now, we haven't talked about the university discourse yet, but what you see in the university discourse is an S2, the university, doing the work of an S1, the master. The master is in the position of truth for the university, which is a very basic Marxian insight that the ruling ideas in any given epoch are always the ideas of that epoch's ruling class. So the professors at your university are always only spouting out, in more or less enigmatic ways, the basic imperatives of whatever typically capitalist system is propping up that university in which that university takes place. The professor is always doing the work of the capitalist. The philosopher is always the mouthpiece for power. This is one of the basic tenets of my first book, Letters to Power. It's a basic Marxist tenet, too, and it's one that is here, right at the foundation of Lacan's thinking of the master. What does philosophy designate? What do we know by philosophy? Well, all philosophy's ever done, Lacan says, is steal knowledge from the slave at the behest of the master. To see it, this, it is enough to read Plato's dialogues from time to time. And as only God knows, for the past 16 years, I have been making an effort to get those who listen to me to do it. You really get this sense in Lacan that he feels like nobody hears him. You really get the sense in these seminars readings. He's kind of down on his audience. He's always taking shits on these people. He's like, y'all suck. You never do what I say you're supposed to do. You never listen. I try to give you all these insights. I try to tell you what to read and you never fucking read. You show up and you just like expect to be spoon fed the fucking insights. Here's one of those things. He's like, for the past 16 years, I've been telling you motherfuckers, all you got to do is read Plato. And you don't. You don't fucking read Plato. You show up to these seminars, but you don't fucking read Plato. (laughs) And here he is flipping out about it just a little bit. God only knows how many times over the past 16 years I've been telling you to just fucking read Plato. But you don't. And so here I am. I'm now going to have to tell you what it's all about. It's kind of like Lacan's little refrain here. It's a beautiful little paragraph at the bottom of page 21. I will begin by distinguishing what on this occasion I will call the two aspects of knowledge, the articulated aspect and this know-how. Now, this is going to become important here. On the master's side, you have an articulated aspect of knowledge, and on the slave side, you have this know-how that Lacan kind of pejoratively refers to as kind of like a bio-animalistic knowledge. I don't care for that as much. I don't think he doesn't need all that. It's not as precise as what I think he means. This distinction that is so akin, oh, here it is, this know-how that is so akin to animal knowledge. I wouldn't put much stock in that shit. What he's talking about is a knowledge that does not rely on signifiers at the level of perhaps body, at the level of embodied practice and the like. That's what he means by know-how here. So you know how to ride a bike. Now, you can try and explain to somebody how the fuck you ride that bike. You can put that into an articulated form. You can use signifiers to create an articulated knowledge of bike riding. 
But if you ain't ridden a bike in a few years, and if you ain't talked to anybody about how to ride a bike, and somebody gives you a bike, I bet dollars to donuts you can just get out in the parking lot and start riding that motherfucker. Here you can think about muscle memory, you can think about bone deep knowledge, the way that you remember how to walk every day when you get up out of bed, the way that you can get on a bike after years of not riding one and simply know how. That's the kind of knowledge he's talking about here, the know-how, but which in the slave is not totally devoid of the apparatus that transforms it into one of the most articulated networks of knowledge. So you have this know-how that has implicit within it the capacity to be transformed into articulated knowledge. Animal knowledge, eh, not so good. But muscle memory, that sounds a little better to me. The point is that this, the second layer, the articulation of knowledge, the articulated apparatus can be transmitted, which means it can be transmitted from the slave's pocket to the master's, assuming they had pockets in those days. It's here that you have the entire effort to isolate what is called episteme. Remember what I told you about epistemology. It's a funny word, Lacan continues. I don't know whether you have ever given it much thought. Putting oneself in the right position. Lacan's so good with etymology. In short, it is the same word as verstehen in the German sense, to understand, understanding. It is all about finding the position that makes it possible for knowledge to become the master's knowledge. I don't know how much Foucault, Lacan, had in mind, but it's tough to read a paragraph like this and not immediately think of knowledge power formations, the way that knowledge and power couple together in various discourse formations. It's all about finding the position that makes it possible for knowledge to become the master's knowledge. The entire function of the episteme, insofar as it is specified as transmissible knowledge. See Plato's dialogues. <laughs> it's almost like a reference. See Plato's dialogues for more information on this. Is always borrowed from the techniques of craftsmen. That is to say, serfs. It is a matter of extracting the essence of this knowledge in order for it to become the master's knowledge. If you like your Weber, this could be a bureaucratization of the imaginary. It's a transformation of someone's lived experiential knowledge, the earned knowledge of riding a bike that comes from having ridden a bike all those years, into something that can be easily transmitted, consumed, annihilated, absorbed, sold to and by the master. And then naturally, this is augmented by a little backlash, which is absolutely what is called a lapsus, a return of the repressed, but so says someone or other, Karl Marx or someone, <laughs> refer to the Mino. And you know he's going to bring up the Mino here. If you read your Plato, you see what he's doing with the slave and the expropriation of knowledge. Okay, here comes the Mino, where it is a question of the square root of two, and it's incommensurable. There's someone who says, hey, look, Get the slave to come over, that little fellow. Can't you see? He knows. They ask him questions, master's questions, of course, and the slave naturally answers what the questions already dictate as their response. It's a really profound and piercing understanding of how platonic dialogue works. It's a kind of fucking tyranny. It's the tyranny that you see in any sort of what social scientists call an adjacency pair. 
Questions beget answers. If I ask you a question and you don't fucking reply, that's rude. The question is tyrannical. Don't listen to motherfuckers that ask you questions. People that ask you questions are trying to control you. They're trying to command you to answer. That's kind of his point here. Platonic dialogue looks like a kind of inquiry. The Socratic method in the classroom looks like a kind of inquiry. We're asking questions and exploring answers. Fuck that noise. When your professor gets up and asks how you felt about the reading or what you found interesting about the reading, they are hoping that you're going to answer a very particular way. That's why they'll say, oh, interesting. Who else has a response to that? And they just keep asking that question until somebody says exactly what they were hoping to discuss. And then they say, that's great. Let's run with that. That's all you. Wow. No, man, it's a fucking leading question. Questions are controlling. Questions are tyrannical. Questions always beget and typically presuppose specific answers. And you see this developing in platonic dialogue. It's the great tyranny of dialogue. Why would I cue this up for you now? This ain't a class in the history and philosophy of communication. Nah, man. This is a series about psychoanalytic experience, theory, and technique. All too often, Lacan refers back to Socrates as a kind of proto-psychoanalyst. I don't fucking buy that. I think that's a dangerous analogy. Because the type of dialogue that would become Socratic through the dialogues of Plato would also become the very communicative foundation for what we know as psychotherapy. Psychoanalysis is not psychotherapy. It is not premised on souls intertwining themselves in this reciprocity known as psychotherapeutic theory and technique. That ain't how analysis unfolds, at least as I understand it, as a simple reader of Lacan here. And the point he's making is that there's something about the way Plato asks questions in his dialogues, always featuring Socrates kicking ass on people who seem to know nothing, is that they're controlling questions. They're leading questions. Beware the psychoanalyst who sits down and asks you a question, my friends. They ask him questions, master's questions, of course, and the slave naturally answers what the questions already dictate as their response. Questioners are dictators. You find here a form of ridicule. It's a way of scoffing at the character who is being taken apart here. It is shown that the serious business, the aim, is to make it known that the slave knows, but by acknowledging it only in this derisory way. What is hidden is that it is only a matter of robbing the slave of his function at the level of knowledge. That is the stake here. Yes, there's this emphasis on dictatorial questions, as all questions are. Questions being those of the master. It's the master who poses questions. Isn't that interesting? It's the master who poses questions. In answering the master, what happens is the slave is dispossessed at the level of knowledge. It's a terrific passage here that gives us a sense of what's happening. We still don't know exactly how the philosopher does this, but what we see here is that the knowledge of the slave is stolen by the philosopher, here Plato, and given to the master, fed to the master in some sort of way. The slave's know-how, knowledge of how things work, 
that is inarticulate is suddenly rendered through philosophical dialogue, through these question and answer formats, maybe that's what it is, into articulated knowledge, into linguistified knowledge, into the master's knowledge, into commodifications of knowledge. Not just significations of knowledge, but commodifications of knowledge. Weirdly enough, this doesn't fucking mean that the master desires to know. The master doesn't want to know anything. Lacan gets at this pretty interestingly at the top of page 24. There's a matter of fact, a question to be asked, he says at the top of 24. Does the master who brings about this operation of displacing the conveyancing of the slave's knowledge want to know? Does the master really want to fucking know what it is that the slave knows? Does he have the desire to know? And that's going to become important. Lacan wants to distinguish knowledge from the desire to know. The university produces a desire to know. The hysteric, though, produces knowledge. Does the master, we'll come to that, have a desire to know? A real master, as in general we used to see until a recent era, and this ha is seen less and less, doesn't desire to know anything at all. He desires that things work. And why would he want to know? There are more amusing things than that. How did the philosopher manage to inspire the master with the desire to know? I will leave you on this note. It's a bit provocative. If there are any of you who work this out between now and next time, let me know. So this is where he ends chapter one. How in the fuck does the university or the philosopher do this work of inculcating a kind of desire to know? It's really difficult for me to read a passage like this and not immediately think of my TikTok feed. Now, I don't do much on TikTok. I don't give a fuck about TikTok. But think about how this works. For a long time, TikTok only wanted to show me like a bunch of fucking nudie videos. I'm flipping through, like trying to figure out how to work TikTok, thinking maybe it might be a good spot for lectures on Lacan to go pop off sometimes. Nah, hell no. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what's all this fucking quasi, like softcore shit that keeps popping up in my TikTok feed? And I'm eventually like, inappropriate. Nope, not what I'm looking for. Not what I'm looking for. Not what I'm looking for. But wait, here's some motherfucker out in the Russian wilderness building a house out of sticks using primitive tools and then building a little stove in there and putting his little cozy little, ooh, he's building a house in the forest using primitive tools. And guess what? He's doing it all at like 20 times the speed. It's in fast motion. The hard work that he's doing of building this house by hand using sticks and shit in the wilderness, it's in fast motion. So that in the span of just a few minutes, I can see him transform a patch of dirt into a semi-submerged little log cabin with a stove going and him drinking a glass of vodka. And I'm like, damn, that's a happy man right there. Thank you, TikTok. Think about what's happening here. The knowledge that that dude has of working the Russian wilderness into something like a half-submerged cabin. Yeah, he could write a book about it. Yeah, he could record the entire thing. 
in the confessional genre that you see from Augustine up to Rousseau, leave no detail out, including Rousseau jerking off at the beach if you've read his confessions. Yes, we could have that version, but how boring would that be? TikTok, man, it's premised on you getting a bunch of shit, a whole experience in a matter of seconds, in a matter of just a few minutes. Hence the fast-forwarding operation and the editing of the clip to create a reel, which is a very brief schematic way that I can consume from the comfort of my own home with this little fucking phone in my hand, somebody's labor, work. I can take their knowledge that is mobilized at the level of using primitive tools to build something, a civilization in the woods, out of the wilderness, and I can have it as a commodity, something that's just for me. Where is the philosopher in this experience where the slave works and I consume the commodity? I enjoy the product, which is not the same as me going to the cabin and sitting in there and enjoying the stove and drinking the vodka with the man. That ain't what I'm fucking talking about. I'm talking about me on the outskirts watching, consuming in a way that is more amusing than that. That's what Lacan means, the topic page 24. I don't have a desire to know. I don't actually want to know how that shit is done. I'm getting off and am amused by the way that I can see it come out of nothing, from wilderness to civilization. That's the commodity. That's what I'm enjoying, is the sped-up process, not the work. I don't actually learn how to build these houses by watching these fucking TikToks. What I get out of it is amusement. What draws me to there is a fantasy of knowledge that belies a pursuit of amusement at the level of commodity consumption. Now, if that's the slave and I'm the master, if that's the producer and I'm the consumer, where's the philosopher in all this? Where's the university in all of this? Bite dance is the university. Bite dance is the philosopher. The owners of TikTok. Hell, the Chinese Communist Party with a share in TikTok if you follow the news and you get all people's paranoias about this shit. There's the philosopher at work. The computer whiz who designs the algorithm that decides which video pops up in your TikTok feed, that's the philosopher. There's Plato. You want to know where Plato is today? I can tell you where he is because I live in San Francisco. I can tell you where he works. He works in Menlo Park. I can tell you where philosophers operate today. They operate at Facebook. They operate at Meta. They operate at Google. They operate at Alphabet. I can tell you who the philosophers are today. They're the folks in charge of large language learning models and generative AI capabilities. These are today's philosophers, the builders of the algorithms that transform and allow the slaves' work to be transformed into a commodity for my consumption at the level of a TikTok, at the level of a TikTok feed, at the level of an app on my phone. These are the philosophers who are doing the work of dispossessing the slave of their knowledge for my amusement. I don't desire to know how to build a house in the Russian wilderness. What I desire, if anything, is to keep those videos coming for my amusement. 
great passage, top of 24, to help you think through some of the shit that goes on on a daily basis, you know, when you're not watching lectures on the con. The master does not desire to know. That's clear. What the master desires, you've heard me say, is that things work. And the master desires to be unconscious of, I would add, all of the slave's labor that goes into that work. The slave's labor that Lacan cues up on page 30. The labor that constitutes a non-revealed unconscious. Now, you might think that the slave's labor refers to their non-revealed unconscious at the level of their muscle memory about how to saw down trees and build cabins and shit like that. I would like to suggest that the type of non-revealed unconsciousness that the slave's labor constitutes is that of the master. The master just wants shit to work. The master doesn't want to know how things work. It wants things to work without remainder, without any challenge. It wants things to be seamless, a seamless experience. What else is happening when you go to Lonely Planet in search of an experience? You're traveling and you want to have an experience. And so you go to Lonely Planet and it's a curated thing and you go out and you fucking ride horses and I don't know, eat fish on the beach. I don't know what the fuck you do. It's a curated experience. You could just as easily walk down and find some horses, rent those motherfuckers for a day, grab some fish, cook it up on the beach, have yourself a pleasant ass time. And a lot of work there, a lot of remainder, a lot of trial, a lot of error, a lot of mistakes that might happen. Nah, man, it's that curated experience that tourism is premised on. So also with the master, always looking for something that works without having to do any of the work themselves. And here's the crucial part, and without having to understand how things work. The master does not desire to know how things work. It just wants things to work and all without remainder to such an extent that even the master desires to have all of his desires met before they even emerge as desires. My point here, and Lacan's point, I believe as well, is that the master doesn't even desire. If a master has a slave that does the work, the master doesn't even have to experience desire because the slave is so good at being a slave they can anticipate the master's desire before the desire even emerges and poof, satisfy it. You're out there playing tennis. You and your other white property male cis friends and you come off the tennis court and before you even have a chance to be like, God damn, I'm thirsty. Up comes Jeeves holding a tray with your favorite iced tea. I thought you might be thirsty, sir. Here, enjoy some iced tea. Poof, you didn't even get a chance to feel like you were thirsty. Your thirst was quenched before you even experienced it. That's how good Jeeves is at being your butler. Let's see how Lacan tracks this stuff out. Page 32 is a really good one here. He's talking about the proletarian being dispossessed for the capitalist, read slave and master. And then he comes down to this paragraph, there you have what constitutes the true structure of the master's discourse. 
The slaves know the slave knows many things, but what he knows even better still is what the master wants. Even if the master doesn't know it himself, which is the usual case, for otherwise he would not be the master. That's an interesting move. The slave knows what it is, and that's what his function as slave is. This is also why it works, since indeed it has worked for quite a while. The good slave in this model of mastery, this highly capitalist model, is one that can anticipate the desires of the master before they emerge. To such an extent that the master is left, notice the sentence right before this paragraph, not knowing what their desire is at all. What remains in effect is the essence of the master, namely that he does not know what he wants. Isn't that exactly what we are as masters today? We don't know what we want. And part of the reason why we don't know what we want is because we have these little iPhone slaves, perhaps you might want to think of it that way, that queue up a new video in a new feed on a new platform through a new app propped up by philosophically driven algorithms for us to enjoy. We don't get a chance to desire because the feed is always feeding us before we decide we're hungry. I'm not going to go too much into that. This ain't that discussion. We are just reading closely and carefully what Lacan is doing here at the start of Seminar 17 as we shift from the topology of the subject to the discourse of the master and its relationship here in particular to the slave as mediated through the articulatory strategies of the philosopher, be it platonic dialogue or algorithmic culture. Which brings us to the analyst. The analyst calls the master to task. All of this fantasy of non-lack, of desire met before it's experienced, the discourse of the analyst, where little a speaks to the split subject that is in the position of truth and unconscious for the master, is exactly what the analyst addresses and calls into question by speaking to the hidden truth of the master, which is that it, the master, is still a barred subject, a split subject, a subject that is incomplete no matter how many ice teas Jeeves anticipates and brings. The master has a commodity that works. Call it a car. Call it a phone. The master has stuff that works for him. But the master doesn't know how it works. The master is ignorant at the level of its operation. The master can't take apart the iPhone. That's why Apple can make iPhones that systematically are designed to not be taken apart because no master has ever wanted to take apart their iPhone. Instead, what they've wanted to do is trade it in and get a newer version of the same iPhone. iPhone 11, iPhone 12, iPhone 13, and so forth. The master doesn't want to know how shit works. The master doesn't know how to work on it. What he lacks is knowledge at the level of know-how. Think about somebody who owns a car versus somebody who knows how to work on a car. There are car owners and there are car mechanics. Car mechanics are also oftentimes car owners, but car owners are very rarely also car mechanics. Think also 
of the imperative that we so often deliver to politicians, at least here in the United States. Shit is broken. Fix it. Debt ceiling, I don't fucking care. I can't understand all that. Fix it. Motherfuckers, what do we pay you to do? Fix it. This is the move that we hear constantly, the refrain that the American populace delivers to the American politician. I don't give a shit how it works. Just fix it. You don't want to know how the bread is made. You just want it to be toasted perfectly and on the plate in front of you. This move where the analyst speaks to the part that is lacking in the master, to the split signifiers that prop up the master's fantasy of wholeness, of completion, of pure, without remainder enjoyment of various commodities. If you accept this, if you accept the position into which the analyst lures you, dear master, into that position of split subjectivity. And here, think neurotic subjects. You can't play this game with psychotics, but it works really well with neurotics, is my understanding from some of the clinicians that I run with. If you accept this hystericization, and that is precisely what the analyst does to the master. The analyst hystericizes the master by speaking to the barred subjectivity that props up the master's sense of self. If you accept this hystericization by the analyst, it wouldn't be surprising to have a master push back. Oh, you're trying to hystericize me, motherfucker? Aha! So you're the one who wants to be the master. Here you would see the master turned hysteric now playing the hysterics part where this barred subject is speaking to the master, the S1, and saying, aha, ah, you want to be the master now. Admit it. Admit it. You're not the master. You don't have the knowledge you purport to have. You're ignorant. And because you lack knowledge, that means you're not absolute. That means you're not the master. Now, I'm moving fast and I'm playing loose here because I want to show you how this pattern of addressivity in each of the discourses cues up positions, addressees, if they accept that positioning, that address, in a way that allows for a certain dialogue to emerge that is not Socratic, that is not Platonic, that is instead analytic. The analyst little a in the position of the agent, speaks to, there's that arrow in the discourse of the analyst, speaks to the barred subject that is the truth of the master. Doesn't address the master as master, addresses the master as a split subject. If the master accepts that hystericization, in other words, shifting slightly into the discourse of the hysteric, where now they would reply from the position of barred subjectivity, Addressing now someone who they presume, aha, you want to be the fucking master. Okay, analyst, you want to call me out for my bullshit. You want to play master? Let's talk about you, motherfucker. You can see how in analytic experience, the master would try and turn the knife back at the analyst and say, aha, you want to play the master, don't you? That is the discourse of the hysteric. That is the discourse of the hysteric at work. The barred subject speaks to the master and says, Admit it. You want to be the master, but you're not. The S2 that is produced in the hysterics discourse is a production of guilt, of admission. Admit it. 
confess. You know nothing. That S2 down there is not all-knowing. It's not certainly knowledge of everything. It's a confession of ignorance. The hysteric is caught up with calling people out as masters, figuring and fantasizing everybody as a master, in order to take them down a notch, in order to show that they ain't what they believe they are. Admit it, you don't know shit. That is the discourse of the hysteric. Oh, you want to be the master. Well, guess what? You don't have it either. Your knowledge is not absolute. Now, what's the problem with all this? First and foremost, the problem is, is that we're jumping ahead. We're moving way too fast through this. But I'm doing this in order to return later to talk about something else. I want to get at something that's an important point in chapter two. A point that I think is a great great concluding moment in this second chapter. If you admit to the hysteric that you are not the master, that you lack absolute knowledge, that your S2, in other words, is a field of ignorance, not knowledge and certainly not all knowledge. This is not a loss. This is not taking the L. This is actually a win for you, at least in some sense, because it returns you to the knowledge process that is at stake for Lacan in the opening chapters of Seminar 17. It returns you to an understanding of knowledge, not as fixed, not as complete in the future or present, but instead as a process that is ever incomplete, just like you and your knowledge. In other words, a space in which mastery cannot endure in this field of knowledge as a process, as an ever incomplete process, in which you have to experience a bit of thirst before you start arriving at something like an iced tea. Because this knowledge process is incomplete, rendered so clearly by the master called out by the hysteric for their ignorance, it's for this reason that that knowledge process is ever renewing, because it is not complete. And it's at the level of this repetitive necessity of a knowledge process that is infinitely renewed by its incompletion that we get a taste of jouissance. The master gets a little taste of jouissance when they let go of mastery just a little bit. That's the wager that I want to have here. Whether we run with it, whether we stick with it, we'll see. It is also precisely why Lacan cues up Hegel. You've heard me get a little bit of Hegelian thought here up in you, talking a little bit about phenomenology of spirit and my experience, my training with it. Listen up, though. Check out what Lacan does with Hegel at the bottom of page 35. Now, you've heard everybody and their mother talk about Lacan taking class with Kojev, reading the phenomenology in a very particular way. Lacan and Hegel, blah, 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 blah. What I like about what Lacan does with Hegel is right here on page 35. Add this to what you've already heard about Lacan and Hegel. Page 35, about a dozen lines up from the bottom, the paragraph begins there in the last discourse on the right. Check out this last bit. Hegel, the most sublime of hysterics. Hegel is the hysteric. I love this image. 
Hegel, the most sublime of hysterics, designates for us as being that of truth. Now read the whole sentence. There in the last discourse on the right, what place is it in? It is in the place that in the master's discourse, Hegel, the most sublime of hysterics, designates for us as being that of truth. Master, meet Hegel, that most sublime of hysterics. Now you've heard what the phenomenology was like for me. Let's hear what it is for Lacan. We cannot say, in effect, that the phenomenology of spirit consists of starting from the so-called selbstbewusstsein, self-consciousness grasped at the most immediate level of sensation, thus implying that all knowledge is known from the outset. He's queuing up the opening chapters in the phenomenology of spirit. What would be the point of all this phenomenology if it were not a question of something else? So, I'm telling you, that what you've heard about Lacan and Hegel needs to have some shit added to it. And Lacan's telling you that what you've understood about the phenomenology and where it starts needs to have some shit added to it. Check it out. What would be the point of all this phenomenology of spirit shit if it were not a question of something else? Something else is happening in the phenomenology. And Lacan wants to think he's got a beat on it. It's just that what I am calling the hysteria of this discourse stems precisely from the fact that the discourse eludes the distinction that would enable one to perceive the fact that if this historical machine, which is in fact only the progress of the schools and nothing more, ever did culminate in absolute knowledge. Now he's at the very end of the phenomenology. And he's saying that if the phenomenology of spirit if phenomenology, if thought, if Hegelian thought ever did culminate in absolute knowledge, check it out, it would only be to mark the annulment, the failure, the disappearance at the condition of the only thing that motivates the function of, of, of knowledge, its dialectic with jouissance. Absolute knowledge is supposed to be the abolition of this conclusion, purely and simply. Whoever studies the text of the phenomenology closely can be left in no doubt about this. So Lacan says, if you read Hegel's phenomenology carefully, here's what you get. Not a book that ends with God masturbating in a state of absolute knowledge. Seriously, check out the end of the phenomenology. On the contrary, this state would be there only to mark the annulment, the failure, and the disappearance. In other words, absolute knowledge is a point of failure. It's the fantasy figuration that props up our understanding of the big other as this totality of knowledge. But it is also here in this Hegelian fantasy that often gets bandied about, about us creeping, consciousness creeping, the consciousness of the concept, the concept of consciousness creeping towards absolute knowledge. And Lacan's point is, fuck that noise. It would mark the failure and the disappearance at the conclusion of the only thing that motivates the phenomenology, the only thing that goads consciousness, the only thing that gets the knowledge process popping. It's dialectic with jouissance. What makes the phenomenology fascinating is not the chapter you're reading, but the one that it is edging toward. It's this dialectic dialectical relationship between knowledge and jouissance, knowledge as a process that is always working at its limit. And in working at its limit, 
growing bigger and bigger and bigger through repetitive instantiations of the same form. The form in Hegel, what is it? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. If you want to be basic about the whole fucking thing. That form repeats over and over and over again in Hegel. Each time, though, it encompasses the previous state. And suddenly you arrive at a wider, more expansive field of consciousness. Lacan's point is, don't think that you're ever going to get to absolute knowledge, and don't think that you would even want to get there if you could. Because that would subtract the very thing that makes reading the phenomenology such a fucking blast. The jouissance you get from working where you are relative to where you ain't yet and noting where you've been along the way. This dialectic with jouissance is precisely what the knowledge process works out. The big barred other as a knowledge process that is always incomplete and working toward completion, goaded by it and never yet reaching it, this big barred other, whose repetitive difference objet a measures over and over again, this big barred other as a knowledge process exists in dialectical relation to jouissance. Jouissance, again, not beyond the limit of knowledge, but knowledge as it plays out in endless iterations of its basic topology. That's where jouissance is, at the repetitive necessity of the basic form and function of knowing. Final word, then we're out. What hysterics ultimately want one to know is that language runs off the rails concerning the magnitude of what she as a woman is capable of revealing concerning jouissance. Hegel, you are not just the most sublime of hysterics, you are also the most beautiful. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.